It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So here we are, or here we're not. Summer season. The summer season. And it, it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth keep, keeping going through August. Definitely. What we try and do every year is give you something special for if you're taking time off, even if you're just having a few hours to yourself. We try and bring you some special conversations for the month of August. And I think we should say that, Jeff, don't we, that we pride ourselves, and this is going to be now coming up to six years of this, of never having gone dark for one week. That's right. That's right. Never having had the lights go out in the reasons to be cheerful studio. You know that they say that on the, the, the nuclear sub if they don't hear the Today programme for, is it one or two days in a row? Then it's time to launch the missiles. Maybe we could add our podcast to that criteria because we're just always here. I think it's a little bit dangerous, but <laughs> I think the general point is is well taken. Yes, which is we feel for our listeners. We don't want them to be without us, do we? No, no, that that would be awful for you. Should we say who our first Fandabidozi author is? Yes. Um, can I tell you something that's occurred to me recently? Go on. There'll be plenty of people listening to this. Mm. who are too young to remember the Crankies, and those people will think you've made up the word fantabby-dozy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Was the Crankies on ITV? I, t- I, t- I think they'd crop up all over the place, wouldn't they? All right. Yeah. I don't think I ever watched the Crankies, but yet fantabby-dozy is sort of in my lexicon. All right. So, well, I'll tell you Go on. who this first fantabby-dozy guest is then. Yeah. Uh, we are starting with Sunder Katwala, who is director... More fantabby than dozy, I'd say. Oh, definitely. Yeah. He's director of the think tank British Future. And we spoke to him about his new book, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War, which is out now. Yeah. And we talk about identity, patriotism... It's a great conversation. Yeah, and and Sunder is such a compelling speaker. And I want to say before we get into it, if you enjoy what you hear, uh, or if you have any suggestions for things that you might want us to cover when we're back in September, um, do let us know. We will take them under advisement, as Ed is fond of saying. Email us or contact us via the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. I think under advisement is what I say when you give me an idea which I don't really want to do. So I'd, I, I would say to the listeners, it won't be just taken under advisement, it'll be taken really seriously. What? Uh, <laughs> this this is news to me. I've spent the last six years thinking, oh, God, I mean, how does Ed find any spare time with all of my ideas that he's got under advisement? No, we, we really take your email seriously. And please also rate us, review us, if particularly if you like us. That's always good, isn't it, Jeff? I think it helps other people find the podcast. It does help other people find the podcast. Send us an email. It makes it all worthwhile for us. We love receiving the emails, particularly when they are affirming. Here's the conversation with Sunda. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Let's say hello to our guest for this episode. His new book is called How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War. Sunder Katwala, hello. Great to be with you. 
It's great to have you. And you've been blurbed. Eddie's been blurbed by Spider-Man. Tom Holland says, my go-to... It's not the same Hang on, it's not Spider-Man. I thought Sunder is connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a different Tom Holland. Did you try to get Spider-Man? Inquiries are ongoing. Maybe for the paperback. Sunder, the book is is fantastic. And, uh, you know, I've I've been waiting for the Sunder Catuala book for a while. Let's start with the idea of the culture war. It's bold to say that you're going to address this. I'm sort of interested to know... How big do you feel the idea of a culture war is in real life? As somebody who spends a lot of time online, how aware of that side of things is, is your average person who perhaps doesn't spend as much time online? It's, it's quite middling, the extent to which the cultural conflict, identity conflicts in Britain can be called a culture war. If you take the term really seriously, I think you'd say we don't really have a culture war in Britain, but we've got increased identity conflict in our politics. I think, I think it'd be much more reasonable to say there's a, there's a proper culture war in America. A culture war, I think, is something quite similar to a civil war. It is when there isn't a belief that the political system can sort out an existential clash between people with different views of a question. It's not the kind of thing you can agree to disagree about. I think abortion in America, I think gun control in America and I think, you know, violence and the election, these are these are the sorts of existential disagreements that are the kinds of things that people might say maybe violence is legitimate in our politics. I.e. culture wars actually legitimise violence. We haven't got very much of that, and we use the term culture war to mean Twitter storm about identity or somebody saying things. But we have got more public awareness of culture wars, cancel culture, wokeness, um, at pace, Year on year, I think I think a quarter of people knew what terms like cancel culture and wokeness meant two years ago, and it was fifty percent last year. So while there's a difference in the intensity, we can't be complacent that we're not sort of going down that road. Just before we get on to patriotism, which is the main sort of argument of your book, is part of the truth here that we are less divided by a culture war than many people would want us to believe. In other words. Actually, by and large, we're quite tolerant, quite inclusive. I think it's quite that's quite important, isn't it? Yes, although it might be the progressives that don't believe that now. There might be a level of progressive jeopardy that is very high because we live in a world of Brexit and a world of Trump. Whereas, you know, it would have been the progressives that were saying, don't worry, we'll all get along. You know, we can make diversity work. It might now be the progressives that have got a high sense of jeopardy. I think the foundational reason for confidence, if you look at the kind of culture war issues of sort of 1968 to 19, the 1990s, they got settled on largely liberal terms. There are questions that used to get asked in the British Social Attitude Survey. What do you think about traditional gender roles? Should men do the work and women stay at home? Is homosexuality always wrong? Um, How do you feel if you had a black boss or if your children married across ethnic lines? The reason they don't ask the questions anymore is the things that were 40-40 divides in the 80s and 90s are now like Um, 80-10. And so we can bank if we want to that that progress um, and say, well, actually, a lot of culture wars got resolved. But I think progressives would worry about all of this. They see it potentially as all being reversed if the right turns up the heat. And I don't think there's much social reality to that. So these are these are more moderate, constrained skirmishes, but they're very important to people who are interested in issues of race, racism, gender. 
So when your subtitle says why love of country can end our very British culture war, we'll come on to the love of country in a minute. What is the thing you're trying to end? I think it obviously it's a bit of an overclaim. You can't you can't fix it. All the problem with culture wars is you know accusing someone of being a culture warrior is a is a is a is an aggressive move in itself. Like like calling dog whistling someone. Everyone knows how to end the culture war, which is that people who don't agree with them should shut up, and everyone should agree with them instead. And that is not how you end a culture war. You end a culture war and you take responsibility for your side, your tribes' voice in the political system when you when you do disagree well about the things you can disagree about while while having the foundations that you need that you need to protect so you know it's fine to call out political opponents when they cross lines but you're only doing something useful on the culture war if you're holding your own tribe and your own side to the standards you demand of others but i guess i want to just sort of try and be as clear as possible we don't have the same culture war as the us but, so what is the thing that we're trying to end, if you see what I mean? We're trying to avoid, and we looked at doing it from 2016 to 2019, and we could keep doing it. We're trying to avoid an escalating, unconstructive social and cultural polarisation where if I know your views about one thing, if I see you wearing a face mask, I know what you think about climate change. And there are just two Britons, um, one of which is progressive on everything and the other one is the opposite. And both... Underlyingly, France and America both have slightly more of that underlying potential. We're trying to make it possible to pick and choose your issues. So to talk a little bit about your your background, your family, and maybe what makes you optimistic about about Britain, because I think I think you see that as a sort of cause for optimism. Why I'm optimistic about Britain is is a story of experience as much as of instinct. I mean, I was born in a hospital in Doncaster, uh, as it happens, in the mid-1970s. And, you know, so I'm born here in Yorkshire to parents who've come to this country from India and Ireland. My dad has taken a flight the week after Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, because he didn't get the coverage Enoch needed in Gujarat. Um, And his parents wanted him to go back. But he's stayed, he's met my mum, who's from Cork, Southern Ireland. So I grew up a sort of Irish Catholic kid with an Indian name, mixed ethnic identity. I'm going to start to wonder about what's going on with history and identity and so on. And you know, as a teenager, I realised that that's quite challenged. I'm you know, very keen on football, but I experience a lot of overt racism as well as seeing Everton win the league title twice, which hasn't happened since. But I then see change in my lifetime, in my society in an absolutely profound way because the racism I was seeing in 1989, 1990 was being sorted out by 1995 and 1996. I was graduating from university into the world of work at the late 90s. There was almost no diversity in our public life. At that point, I graduate into a country where there's never been a black or Asian government minister in this country. So, you know, whatever you think of the politics of the diverse cabinet and diverse opposition, it's a change that I've experienced. And we're keeping those changes. Those are foundational changes that we don't lose to the referendum, the culture of football stadiums when I take my 11 year old. Now, I'm then writing a book that isn't saying, has Britain got a place for people like me? Because I sorted that out by the time I was a young adult. It's like, why is everyone else at loggerheads on identity? Am I the only optimist left? Let's find out why do people not share my confidence? And you've got to get into what's into what's going on. And um, it's much harder, I think, to 
pitch this idea of confidence to people who are the beneficiaries, people born in this century, benefit from the change of the 80s and 90s, but didn't experience them. Their expectations have risen. It hasn't felt like society is going forward. And if I start saying, oh, but we used to have monkey chanting and bananas being chucked, they'd be like, well, what, what do you want a gold medal for not chucking bananas? That's not the change I want to say. I want equal opportunity yesterday. So I like that radicalism and high expectations, but I think it's worth putting the desire for change in the story of the changes we've made and worked out how we got them and how to go forward. We got them by reducing the social distance between groups in our society, in classrooms, in universities, you know, over the generations. So we should keep that and build on that. And and just talk to us, if you don't mind, and if it's not too personal a question, about your own kids and how the challenges that they face and the world that they are growing up in feels different from your from the world you are growing up in, obviously in many different ways. Yes. Um, I mean, it gives me confidence when I talk to them. But the um, the, the kids feature in the book, particularly because um, while Britain's becoming more ethnically diverse at pace, the Katwala household is becoming less ethnically diverse because I filled in the census forms in 2011 when the kids were all aged under five or six. And I, 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 I thought the kids were mixed white Asian like me. I tick the same box. And they've decided they're white British now because they go to very diverse schools. And my daughter said, I'm support with Black Lives Matter. But, you know, if people give you white privilege most of the time, you've got white privilege. And so was... And I was saying, but Zarina Katwala, when you send your CV in, you know, you know, you've got skin in the game when the people are, you know, not giving the right number of interviews. I didn't say, what about the narrative? The mixed race people were the answer. Here, kids, we were going to nail this, nail this census. My children get very annoyed. They think, they think it's really obvious that woke is an insult and that nobody would identify it and that you'd need to be a 50 year old progressive to think it can be a compliment as well. But they think that much more strongly now. So anyway, they're the, they're a source of information for me, you know, not, not an entirely representative and balanced one, but it's quite interesting to see how they integrate these points. I'm feeling very attacked right now. <laughs> and just talk to us then about patriotism um, and why you think that is so relevant to this whole question. Yes, and it, it is a counterintuitive proposition, I think, because clearly what we're seeing is that identity can divide. So if identity can divide, maybe we should avoid identity and say, don't we all love the NHS and isn't everyone worried about their gas bills now and then just hope this stuff calms down. And, you know, there is obviously a shift towards more economics and less identity. I think you've got to go through it. You've got to have a, a principled case for what to do about differences of cultural identity, how to resolve them. For progressives, of course, it's about being able to make social change over time without contributing to this sort of civil war-like politics. So it's really important, I think, to have national moments, national symbols, experiences where you're doing something with the people that you don't agree with politically, that you're not living in sort of Remain land and Brexit land and you don't share anything. So things like our sporting teams can be used for that. Things like the monarchy can have that, even though not everybody agrees with it. The, the most important institutional inoculation in Britain is that our broadcast media, which is regulated, has you know some opinion in it, but is still a kind of relatively straight place. And if something big is happening in Ukraine, in COVID, in politics, lots and lots of people with different views 
are watching the BBC. And one of the big differences between Britain and America is that in America, anything that happens in America, two different groups of 40% of the country are just watching a totally different narrative of what just happened. And so it becomes incredibly difficult for people to say, I agree the election was fair because one channel is saying it almost certainly wasn't and the other channel is saying this is the start of a civil war. So you want to keep at all levels the possibility of meaningful contact, shared identity and people with different views having the same experience rather than parallel separate experiences. But how how easy is it for that to hold, not just now that people can to some extent get the news that best suits their views online, but also with with the plurality of channels. We, we were lucky to grow up in a time, I guess, where there were three and then four channels. And so, so lucky. Well, I think we were in a way because. That's it, not what my children say, Jeff. Yeah, but your children, I know this now takes us uh, into a, a slightly fatuous way of looking at it, but Ed was a kid who grew up on Dallas. No child would ever watch, say, Succession because they've got their own media. Yeah. So media was able to unite people, not yeah. just that we were getting the same news, but those cultural moments. There were just many more eyes on them because we were in an era of media scarcity and that has changed. So it's it's harder for it to hold up. That's right. And I I agree, you know, the BBC for a century old. And I think three generations of us, which I'm very much one born in the mid 70s, was very much children of the BBC in the way that my children won't be. So everything I care about, you know, taping the pop charts and watching Top Spots every Thursday night for 15 years, which was an intergenerational experience. I think the political fragment, the media fragmentation is a challenge and it is a problem. And I also think progressives could make it worse because if you now mount a kind of progressive campaign to save the BBC from the evil Tories, you've almost, before we started the argument, created the problem that the BBC is now going to belong to progressives who believe in climate change and not to the evil Tories. I want a sort of progressive and a conservative defence. This is the place where we do the last night of the proms and the coronation. We could still do some of this if we fragmented the channels more, but it's easier for 20 million of us to occasionally do the same thing once or twice a decade if we keep a trusted institution that does that. And at a local level, that's really important that, you know, something really terrible happens in Nottingham. BBC Nottingham is an incredibly important institution for people talking about what that means. I didn't quite have to ask this question, but but you want to embrace patriotism. What does that mean in practice? I think politics could be part of the problem. I think at at a social level, we want to share a country with our neighbours because in the end, however much Scotland disagrees about the future of Scotland or Northern Ireland does and England and Wales, we are living on this island. We're living in these towns and cities. And I want to find emotionally important, resonant ways to share that in memorable ways. They don't all have to be sporting events, but sporting events have that feature. You don't have to like sport, but they're intense things. You win and lose together. You remember it and you tell stories about it. You need moments like that so that the fact that you've got different views about whether there should be an independent Scotland or not isn't an existential thing where you where you're going to hate each other that's what you want to do now politics can be part of the problem because if you don't want these um them and us identities that join everything up politicians tell them and us stories and if they start to say we're the patriots don't trust them they're not patriotic rather than saying we've got a different idea different agenda then you'll get a kind of a thing where people might opt out of patriotism because it seems like it belongs to Brexit or the opposite. So so I think it's really important that politicians don't do a kind of we're the real patriots, the other side don't really count, but actually have their vision and 
their story about how they relate to the nation, what they want to keep about it, what they want to change about it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. How do you engineer a sense of national identity without it seeming a little bit sinister and top-down? I think it has to be quite soft. It's a liberal democracy, especially with you know younger generations. So I think a lot of this is show not tell. It might be about quite soft use of you know moments that still matter. Remembrance hasn't faded away as something that still matters because it's part of an intergenerational contract of gratitude to people who are no longer alive. You know, the 75th birthday of the National Health Service will be marked as quite a symbolic occasion about what it means to be British and what we decided. You know, we don't treat it as just a public service. We treat it as having macro symbolic importance. You can also do things in schools. Ofsted can send a thing around saying shared British values are respect for diversity and difference. And then they can teach that to primary school children. But the question of whether that feels right, real or not to you when you're nine and when you're 15 and when you're 21 does depend on, you know, how maybe how politicized or how sort of this is for you or this is not for you those moments feel. I say in the book, you know, all of this seemed quite simple to me when I was eight. Your vision song contest is on, the royal wedding's very boring, you know, England going to the World Cup are much more complicated when I'm a teenager. But I actually see efforts being made to tell a story about how these things include people like me. If you're getting a message that these things are not for you, then it then we won't have that kind of cultural and social capital to do that bridging and to do that bonding. If you take a sort of pinnacle moment for perhaps national unity like the Olympics. What does that teach us about your thesis? I mean, in other words, or what inspiration do you draw from that? I think there are two useful things about moments like that up to a point. So London gets the games for Britain in 2005. It gets it in the moment, the same moment of the 7-7 bombings, actually. So it has to deal with the opportunity to tell the world a story about the diversity youth of London and then a really shocking event. It has to talk about what that still means. It handles that very well, literally, in that in that week, and then has an idea about what it's saying to the world. What's valuable, and I think I think perhaps people who voted Remain might miss this, what's valuable about 27 million people watching Danny Boyle tell a story about Britain because we're hosting the Olympics and we want to tell the world what we're telling ourselves. The 27 million, that doesn't just belong to one of the tribes. All of the political tribes in Britain can see different things that connect them. The smelting of the rings is a very powerful story about the Industrial Revolution. But what I think is really important, I would really contrast what what was good about the Boyle ceremony to what happened with the Millennium Dome. It feels to me the Millennium Dome says the future, not the past. And because it's the future, not the past, it hasn't got any roots or any story. Boyle shows development of Britain over a thousand of years, history turning into modern Britain. So that's important. What that gives you a symbolic vision to think on our better days, on a happy time. I like that version of our country. I would like to be that version of our country. But of course, it will be idealized and it won't be entirely true. So I think, I think you need, you need a strategy to make your society more like the idealized version you want. But a glimpse of what we might achieve together is a, is a valuable thing to have. 
On history, is that a huge part of the answer, history in education? So I know uh, you talk about Windrush in the book. Um, My son is seven and learns about Windrush. It it certainly wasn't ever something uh, I was aware of at school. Is a big part of this telling those stories? There's There's a real paradox about history, especially if you're in Britain. If we have a culture war in Britain, if you really want to get one going, it'll be about history because history really matters in Britain. I mean, this is a thing Tony Blair was wrong about. Tony Blair said, we're a young country. I mean, he might have had some aspirations, but it's, I mean, Britain's an old country and it knows it. And so that could make it sound difficult, but there's loads of resources in British history. The, the secret of the British in history is we're very proud of it. We don't really know any of it. And there's an appetite to learn about it. You then have resources in Britain that I think are harder to find in Western Europe. Of, are there shared symbols, shared moments, shared stories about this history? It's obviously a history of empire, decolonization, immigration. It sounds quite sharp edged and we might be saying, let's stay away from that. Actually, the history of Britain means that the really cherished uh, tradition of remembrance is about two world wars fought by armies that look much more like the Britain of the 2020s and the Britain of 1918 or the 1940s. It's surprising for people to who care a lot about remembrance to see there's this enormous Commonwealth contribution minority state. You go into classrooms, you'd have you know young people, you know, quite keen to pursue change, saying, write us into our history books, tell the full story. But it's quite a constructive, quite potentially bridging thing. The history of Britain really is a long history about how we became us. I think I think we've been a bit scared of that because it feels like that might be a problem in multi-ethnic classrooms. That is how to explain that the multi-ethnic classrooms exist. And there can be a def- defensiveness amongst people if they feel that their history, which may, they really might not understand that well or, or know that well, there can be a real defensiveness if people then feel like that history has been reverse engineered. How, how do you counteract that? There can, there can be a defensiveness and you can do this in a really, in a broad way where you write new chapters and you write new chapters into the book. It feels good for minorities. Everyone says that's good. I own the book. Or you can do it in a, a way that, that triggers a lot of defensiveness. The defensiveness is quite ironic. So if we start talking about empire or slavery, a lot of people will then say, maybe they're white British from the majority group, they'll then say, well, I wasn't born. Don't pin that on me. I'm not guilty. But they've actually abolished the idea of a nation now because they're going to be proud of Shakespeare. Don't think they were born when Shakespeare was here. So that defensiveness or, you know, didn't everyone else do it? So I think you've got to be careful about that. I think hear all the voices, tell all the stories. It's quite inclusive uh, language. It's good. If you start talking about decolonization or let's remove all of the statues, you create a much more polarised, much more defensive debate on both sides. But Sundar, aren't you highlighting one of the big challenges here? Jeff and I did an episode on this ages ago. We didn't really teach, you know, the history of empire in schools when Jeff and I were growing up, and we probably still don't. And that's partly because it's such a potentially contested and divisive terrain. I mean, isn't that just a massive challenge? It's just so much less contested when you do it, partly because the world wars and remembrance story as a way into empire and colonisation is an example. There are definitely sharp edges of this history. I think if people who are mainstream conservatives feel that you're taking what you say is an image of an old monolithic 1950s history, and of course, history has moved a long way in schools. You know, horrible histories, I think, you know, for kids, does the, does the stories of empire and Britain you know, reasonably well most of the time. If you're then going to replace that with a really sort of monolithic story where there's only one answer, then that's, that's sort of swapped it over. If you're going to get into the complexity of it. What what has been the problem is not that it divides 
if you do it, actually, it does the opposite. Is that is that sometimes you have parallel conversations going on that you haven't been able to join up. What is the evidence that it's it's easier to do than people might think? Well, um, during the second, the first World War Centenary, twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen, knowledge of Commonwealth troops went from. 40% to 70% in this country and people with conservative views and young people with um, left-wing views all thought that was a really important thing to do, that we'd made it more common ground. Now, it might be that you know doing specific bits of the sharp edges of slavery get more difficult, but if you do it well, it's good. Take, take Edward Colston and Bristol, which is the epicentre of that, of that history debate. Very, very few people outside Bristol knew much about that. Everyone in Bristol had been hearing about it for 10, 15 years because Colston's everywhere. Everything's named after him schools and so on. But what happened in Bristol, and I think the Mayor Marvin Reese did a very good job. There are two or three different conversations in Bristol. I could go to an event, a, a festival of ideas in Bristol every year, and everyone will agree that we need to do more to sort out the history. And a completely different group of people will be writing in the online comments section of the Bristol Post saying, you know, tell these woke people to leave Bristol's history at all. And nobody had managed to create a space where those views could be heard, could work out what they wanted to do. After the statue came down, they actually had a history commission. It did large public engagement and they found a way to, to actually get the views respected. It turned out that there was quite a lot of potential late consensus. It should be in a museum. We should tell the story. We shouldn't whitewash the past, but we shouldn't, you know, write it all out. And so, but it was really difficult to work out who was going to do that. You know, an institution like the National Trust might do that and got into a lot of cultural challenge for doing that. But there was a big public appetite for what they were trying to do. Can we move on to, you have a, a, a tiny, perhaps not statistically significant, but very interesting focus group in your in-laws who they are conservative, they voted to leave. Have they read the book? Yes, they have. And they had to read the book for GDPR reasons, the publisher said, because I was revealing their voting behaviour in the referendum. And I said, it's not, it's really not a secret <laughs> how the in-laws voted. Have you had a conversation with them about it? Yeah, they, they, they said it's a very fair, they're very proud of the book. They said I'm the first person in the family to write a book, but they said it's a very fair account of the Brexit divide, partly because I'm quite empathetic to them. I, I started, I was having monthly conversations with them. I was tweeting them as Brexit and Billericay. I learned quite a lot from, they got a bit radicalised in that three-year stalemate, my father-in-law particularly. It's also an example, I think, of social distance, because a lot of people say to me on Twitter, Sunder, get to Billericay, you know, give us an update. We need to know what's going on on Billericay. People are saying that in, you know, liberal newsrooms occasionally. Um, my in-laws aren't representative of the Brexit vote, but they, they represent broadly the views of a quarter of a country the people who sort of would have been quite happy to leave without a deal and then see what happened because, you know, it's all got a bit political. And if if you if you don't know anybody who voted differently to you and you don't have those conversations, and, you know, they, they've got surprisingly sort of moderate and liberal views occasionally on some things because, you know, they change their minds a lot on questions of sexuality, especially in gay rights. You know, my, my wife went to, went to university, her parents met gay people who were her friends, you know, they change their views. So it's quite, it's, it's quite interesting to get a, a rounded view of the actual person who holds these views, not your impression of what everyone who thinks like that must think. Isn't this a very good sort of note to end on and a very good lesson, which is, you know, because they are your in-laws, you engage with them, and also because you're a decent bloke and all that, you engage with them with empathy and you listen to what they've got to say and try and understand where they're coming from without being dismissive. And isn't that quite a good lesson for us all about people we disagree with? I mean, isn't that the fundamental point? Isn't that the fundamental lesson? 
Yes, I think I think that empathy of you know your opponents or people you might say that's really important. But the other thing is we do we do need you do need meaningful contact in the real world, real conversations. Yeah. With people. I mean, lots of people who voted Remain as part of the geography of it will say I, I just I've never really spoken to somebody who voted the other way because nobody I know does. I think structuring in that meaningful contact and not having political parties, political movements, pressure groups that are sort of monocultures of everyone's got a degree and everyone thinks the same. And now we're going to have a conversation about what people who aren't in the room want to hear from us. That would be much worse than broadening the room and being able to talk to different people. Well, look, Sunder, it is, as always, fascinating to talk to you. A total pleasure. Uh, the, the book is How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War. Sunder Katwala, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you both. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Thank you for listening to this summer cheerful conversation. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And this has been... Summer Lovin'. Reasons to be cheerful. 